2: Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it.
1: Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts.
3: From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Thursday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up this hour, we focus on two nonprofits seeking solutions to the affordable housing crisis nationwide and here locally.
4: You have to look hard to find it, and we've had to develop a network of largely private sector real estate players that are helping us fund these assets and get the word out.
1: So we wanna move the needle on racial equity, economic mobility, and better health outcomes. And we do this with a very specific model of creating healthier places for people to live Those
3: conversations coming up in just a moment. But first, this, Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms held a press conference earlier today addressing the city's public safety efforts.
2: Recently, we launched our One Atlanta, One APD immediate action plan to address the spike in violent crime in Atlanta. The plan includes both immediate and long-term actions, and today I will give you an update on where some of those actions stand uh, as it relates to our nuisance properties we committed in our plan to address nuisance properties which are a threat to public health welfare and safety including those that may contribute to the commission of a violent crime um, we're happy to report that our administration introduced legislation on january 19th to strengthen our public safety response to these properties the legislation calls for ensuring that businesses license in the city As restaurants actually operate as such, at the time of the annual liquor license renewal, restaurants will be required to submit a statement from a certified public accountant that proves that at least 50% of its sales come from food and beverages. Additionally, this legislation adds a maximum penalty for the first violation which is the revocation of the business's liquor license. Also, the plan calls for additional resources and targeted enforcement on gangs and gun violence.
3: Now, coming up on tomorrow's program, we'll hear more about new legislation that looks to study the feasibility of a Department of Public Safety and Wellness Center. Meanwhile, nationwide, fewer Americans applied for unemployment benefits last week, but the number of applicants still remains high. 900,000 Americans applied last week alone. Now, according to the U.S. Labor Department, 5.1 million Americans are receiving state jobless claims at this time. And this comes just about one year after the first coronavirus case was confirmed here in the U.S. Now, a year later, that number stands at... 24,440,100 cases, according to John Hopkins University. Here in Georgia, 695,400 COVID-19 cases have been confirmed in the state. And 47,311 people have been hospitalized. Of those, 8,041 considered ICU admissions. And this is always according to the Georgia Department of Public Health. In other news, let's talk about sports. The Atlanta Falcons have a new general manager. The team's owner and chairman, Arthur Blank, introduced Terry Fontenot in a press conference on Tuesday. Fontenot most recently served as vice president of the New Orleans Saints, an opportunity he cherishes. I want to talk about my New Orleans family, Um, starting with with Mickey Loomis. Uh, 18 years ago, Mickey Loomis pulled in a 22-year-old kid. I'm sorry, guys. It's
0: all good. It's all good. Take your time, Terry.
3: And he really gave me the opportunity of a lifetime in not just my professional growth, but my personal growth. He's done so much for my family. Now with the Falcons, Terry Fontenot says his goal is to focus on, quote, sustained success for the team. We're not going to be prisoners in the moment. We're not going to make decisions that are going to help us in 2021, but they're going to hurt us in 22 and 23 we're going to think big picture and do the right things because the goal here is to build the team the right way and have sustained success. Ah, welcome to Atlanta. This is Closer Look. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. So we've heard the term tidal wave and tsunami. That's how many analysts are describing what is to be expected in a wave of evictions and housing instability as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. And nearly eight months of gridlock. You know, Lawmakers recently agreed on a $900 billion bipartisan stimulus package to give Americans some relief. I guess every little bit helps, as some would say. The bill sets aside $25 billion for emergency rent relief and extends a nationwide eviction moratorium. But here's the question. Is it enough? Will it be enough? And when it's over, what still needs to be done? Now here locally, there are a number of organizations stepping up to help preserve and create affordable housing. You should know we've had so many conversations on this program about that. And not just about affordable housing, but affordability. So those are two different things. Now, the Atlanta Neighborhood Development Partnership Incorporated recently pledged $438 million towards affordable housing. The goal is pretty simple to create and preserve 2,000 affordable units, apartment units, and single family homes by 2025. Can it be done? Joining me now to share more about this is John O'Callaghan. He is ANDP's president and CEO. John, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it.
4: Rose, thanks so much. Appreciate your ongoing uh, coverage of this and other issues that impacted families at this very difficult time.
3: Let's begin with what we are hearing housing analysts have been referring to in terms of a eviction tsunami and an eviction tidal wave. Uh, we're hearing that it could be 20 million households affected. The numbers keep changing day to day reflect on that for me john before we get into our conversation
4: you know in atlanta we saw directly when their national forces that communities in our areas got hit particularly hard the foreclosure crisis wiped out generations of wealth accumulation and particularly african-american household so we are at risk whatever the national trend that is going on is uh, hitting here now and we are at risk the hope is that some of the programs that have been done in the past we think have slowed so the stimulus payments that came out shortly after the pandemic we saw as an owner of affordable housing that you know our tenants were able to get through for a while And so I hope that the next round of stimulus will continue to help. There have been philanthropic efforts with United Way, with the Community Foundation, or not-for-profits like ours, uh, who still need to pay taxes, still need to pay staff at our properties, but don't want to evict anybody that's been impacted by COVID, have been able to receive resources where if there's a family impacted, by COVID, and we define that pretty broadly, we can use some of these charitable dollars, we may collect less, uh, but and the families may give what they can if they've got a stimulus check or working part time. But the goal is to keep people in their homes, if we evict them, they will be on the streets, and it will cost all of us, particularly that family,
5: mm-hmm.
4: more. Uh, so, we need more of the things that have been working. And largely, much of that has been from the federal government with philanthropy filling in. Mm.
3: So, let's step back a, a little bit for listeners who aren't familiar with your nonprofit. How long have you all been around?
4: So, we are 29 years old. Uh, we were formed out of Mayor Maynard Jackson's administration initially to serve the city of Atlanta through a partnership with what is now Invest Atlanta, the city's economic development arm and the Atlanta Metropolitan Chamber. Today we serve the region. Much of our work though is focused in neighborhoods that systemically uh, have experienced racism and how housing has been delivered in the neighborhoods. And so we are very active also region, but particularly neighborhoods near and south of Mm I-20. There are neighborhoods in Gwinnett County that have similar demographics and a similar history of uh, underinvestment that was actually legalized, forced underinvestment. Mm -hmm. And we are trying to serve those neighborhoods uh, and uh, families uh, to make sure that housing is Available and affordable across the region.
3: So, John, you all are buying vacant, foreclosed, distressed homes. Take our listeners through how you all do this.
4: So, so as this crisis of affordable housing has expanded, our board and our partners and our staff are asking, how can we serve more broadly? Mm -hmm. So, we own existing apartments. And as part of the plan, we are gonna develop, oftentimes with a partner, uh, 1,250 new apartments over the next five years. Some of those are already in process. We have 380 that are already in process and some of the units are actually now getting leased up and others are in development. We are going to acquire or build 750 homes, some of those may be foreclosed homes that we update, some may be new construction homes that we build from scratch. And of those 750 single family homes, our goal is to immediately sell at least 500 to new low and moderate income home, homeowners. And we have a particular expertise and focus on addressing a growing home ownership gap uh among black families and in black neighborhoods uh we also do some lending to other Mm -hmm. not-for-profits that are building homes and we also work with neighborhood leaders on how they can make their neighborhood safer get a voice in some of the housing policies Uh, but in all these things with our small staff we really do it through partnerships Mm -hmm. so the word partnership is really key to our model.
3: Are you all up against what pretty much anyone would be up against who might be in the market for a home or looking for a place to rent? These communities where there may be some development taking place that's raising the average rental price, raising property taxes, that's something you all can't control. You know, who just want to come in, buy a property, and flip it for a a, a profit.
4: That is the market that we are in, Mm -hmm. what we found with the current crisis, COVID related crisis, is that there are some investors that came in after the foreclosure crisis that are trying to maximize their profit. Mm -hmm. Nothing's against the law in that, but there are effects on some of that. And some of those folks are selling single family homes that they had purchased in the foreclosure crisis Uh, because they may want to invest in office buildings or hotels or something else that is undervalued. So we are trying to raise capital. We will raise a little bit of charitable money and then we'll match that with other sources. So in that 438 million, we need to raise 18 million of charitable money, but we're able to leverage the balance with competitive federal grants from the (laughs) treasury department with money from HUD with money from our mayor's housing opportunity bond that she and council are are adopting. So we actually have been finding pretty good market opportunities. And we have acquired just in the past six months or so, 50 single family rental homes that had been owned largely by absentee investors. Mm
5: -hmm.
4: Most of these have a voucher holder which means the resident makes below 30% of their median income. These are low income people, mm-hmm. but they have received from a housing authority, a voucher that helps them with their rent. They'll pay a part of the cost and then part of it they can't afford. So we have been focusing particularly on buying those homes, because if we did not buy them, the risk is the investor that's selling Sells to a new investor. Mm-hmm. That new investor doesn't want to deal with vouchers. Somebody is displaced. at the Same time.
3: Well, John, I got to ask you when you mention the ability to try and and purchase you know homes at below one hundred thousand. I got to ask you, are there many of those homes available within the, the city of Atlanta proper? I mean, even in some of those just what we call distressed communities or distressed areas. I check out Zillow and and you know. I'm not seeing that, but you're you're saying there's some still out there.
4: They're very few, and they are not on multiple listing services. Mm-hmm. So we have partnered with uh, Invest Atlanta through housing opportunity fund dollars that they had, through a social impact fund that's newly created, the Atlanta Affordable Housing Fund, and through a bank lender in this instance, Renaissance Bank, where we have a fund. To buy these houses and we had budgeted that we might have to pay 160,000 to buy them and update them where they were safe and quality. And in today's market by competing with investors directly uh, having a little bit more money, maybe we can buy five or 10 at a time, instead of one at a time, which gives us a discount. We're buying these homes for about 130000 in the city, mm-hmm. but you are right. You have to look hard to find it, and we've had to develop a network of largely private sector real estate players that are helping us find these assets and get the word out that we're able to acquire them.
3: As you know, John, so much is always made about the west side or the southwest side, and then we get over into the Pittsburgh neighborhood are there some communities, are there neighborhoods where you had a focus on or you have been working in? And now because of the market that you've been that you're up against, you really can't find anything in those neighborhoods anymore.
4: Great example is the Pittsburgh neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason ANDP dropped everything it was doing and focused on the foreclosure crisis was because a leader from the Annie Casey Foundation, I remember invited me to take a tour at the start of the foreclosure crisis and the devastation for that neighborhood was amazing. The zip codes in that area were the highest foreclosure rates in the country. Mm. So we are working uh, with this foundation and local community resident groups and had been taking homes that were bought during the foreclosure crisis and updating them and selling them nice homes. And when we first were selling the homes, we could sell them at market and they were affordable. In fact, our job was to help lift value. So there was some value. Mm -hmm. What we're finding today is that the home values are increasing so much that the strategy in Pittsburgh today is if we sell a home at a price that someone can afford, and largely that is we may provide a very large down payment that's largely funded through city of Atlanta resources or through the Casey foundation. Mm -hmm. You need to make sure that home remains affordable. So the homes in the Pittsburgh neighborhood we're working on, are going to be a part community land trust, uh, the Atlanta land trust, uh, effort. And so in that neighborhood, the strategy is different Mm -hmm. than might be in North Clayton County, where right now values aren't going up that quick. It's really about access and transportation, quality of the home and making sure that when they're rehab, they operate well. And so you literally have to find a partner in each area of the city or the region that can help us guide on the local conditions to do the best mission.
3: If you just join us, I'm joined by John O'Callaghan. He's president and CEO of Atlanta Neighborhood Development Partnership Corporation, And we're talking about his nonprofit's plan to invest $438 million towards affordable housing by 2025. You all are talking about a mission of 2,000 affordable apartment units and single-family homes by 2025. As a president and CEO, how often are you looking at that timeline and then looking at Realistically, looking at what's already underway, and are you all on
4: track, John, to yeah, meet that? Great, great, great question. uh I'm dreaming about it. <laughs> you. Yeah, you're I'm dreaming about dreaming it, but about you, you got to wake up, yeah. John. <laughs> wait, 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 what time? So we went we went bold for a couple of reasons. Yeah. So affordable housing has been a big issue in Metro Atlanta, and what we found when we started developing homes, even when we were developing 50 homes a year, we were selling more quality homes and communities of color at an affordable price than any private company or not-for-profit in the metro area. So we are small, but we were the market leader. There's such a need. We hope that if we stand up and pledge something bold that we believe we will reach that it will inspire others to go in and get out there and take the first step. We have not raised all of the $18 million. We have raised $5 million from a lead gift. We have not raised all of the $438 million, but we have raised enough capital to fund 380 of the apartments are already in process. Uh, we have already raised capital for single family, new construction homes mm-hmm. through uh, new markets, tax credits, a complicated program, but when yeah. we're partnering with uh, two not-for-profit lenders, uh, and through our single family rental, through the partnership I've mentioned with Invest Atlanta, the impact investor in the bank for, for 200, single family homes.
3: So, John, as I mentioned, having so many conversations, is there enough partnerships and resources to meet the need and the demand?
4: Not anywhere. Okay. Not anywhere close. The need is so great and so overwhelming. I remember when the foreclosure crisis started and we had meager resources uh, and we had a plan that we thought was bold to acquire six homes, rehab mm-hmm. six homes and get a family that was at need there. And we would hope those six homes would help the neighborhood and the homes next door. So maybe they wouldn't go into foreclosure. Mm-hmm. Countless people, though, came to me and said, why, why are you bothering?" the wave is so big what is six homes gonna do Mm -hmm. and we realized we couldn't stop the wave but if we did six homes that would be six streets and six neighborhoods and six families Mm -hmm. and what we didn't anticipate is by doing those six homes in one year now we're talking about doing 400 homes a year and we're gonna be successful. You talked about Leonard Adams and Quest, my goodness. The scale of their work Mm -hmm. has gone up multiple fold. Habitat is doing more. The Land Trust is doing more, Westside Future Fund. So those of us in this not-for-profit world are looking around Mm -hmm. and we're looking at the private sector and they can make more money elsewhere And so, our hope is that by us doubling, quadrupling for ANDP, this 2000 would be a quadruple of where we were six years ago, Mm -hmm. Uh, would be compared to the six we did a decade ago, is just, you know, a hundredfold. And so, our hope is if we can demonstrate that with a few resources, with a few dollars, impacts that touch not a few not dozens but hundreds and thousands that we can better make the case federally with local sources that we have a model that if there were resources that were at larger scale that they could be deployed and deployed through great stewardship and they could make a difference so that's the work we're a part of uh, Part of every day, at least every week, we do pause. Mm-hmm. And we realize that market forces in uh, housing and health and a lot of other areas are a wave uh, that threaten to overwhelm the families we serve. Uh, but we cannot spend all of our time focused on what we cannot do. We need to multiply what we can do and continue Uh, to have hope.
3: Finally, John, what is your outlook in 2021 for the Atlanta region in terms of housing affordability, whether it's what you all are doing or all combined with all of the other work you just mentioned that we've been talking about here in this region?
4: Um, The first impact is this horrible pandemic. And we had a supply and demand issue. There, There wasn't enough housing for the folks who wanted to live here so prices go up. Mm -hmm. Well, very little has been developed with COVID and that's one of the reasons we felt we needed to go in and announce our plan and not wait until after the pandemic because the units take a while to develop and are needed. Uh, We worry that if the federal government doesn't continue stimulus and rent moratoriums that Uh, There is going to be a foreclosure crisis and that folks will be pushed out and that it will be much worse. Uh, I actually think the second half of the year and how difficult a hole we will have to come out of will be determined uh, by policy uh, decisions and local investment decisions uh, and personal decisions. If people take that shot because we all need to take the shot. And if we can manage the next half a year through the COVID crisis, we will be in a hole, uh, but hopefully the hole won't be twice as deep as it was before we went into uh, this pandemic.
3: John O'Callaghan is president and CEO of Atlanta Neighborhood Development Partnership Incorporated. We'll have links to your website on our website about all the initiatives that you all are involved in for folks that want to find out more. John, thank you for taking the time. Thank you for what you all are trying to do in our community.
4: Thanks so much for the opportunity to share. Appreciate you, Russ.
0: Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta
3: continues now here on ninety point one WABE. This is Atlanta's choice for NPR as always. I'm Rose Scott. The events of the past year have led to many conversations about equity in our nation, and we always talk about those tentacles tied to our quality of life, right? But how do we turn those conversations into actionable outcomes? So that's a question we've turned to often on this program. Here's part of a mission statement: Achieving racial equity. It's part of the mission statement of Purpose-Built Communities. It's a national nonprofit with roots right here in Atlanta. And the organization recently named a New Leadership. Carol Naughton is now the new chief executive officer of of Purpose-Built Communities. And she joins me now. Carol Naughton, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you, Rose. I'm delighted to be here.
3: Before we get into the organization and educate people a little bit more about the mission of purpose-built communities, there's so much taking place right now, at the time of this conversation in our nation, coming off of 2020. We have a new administration coming in, but we're also coming off a just horrific, horrific event taking place at our nation's capital. If you can put all this in perspective for me, what do you make of all this?
1: Uh, Rose, that that seems to be the big question, right? Um, We've just come through what I think is certainly the most disturbing event in my life with regard to our country. We had a situation where armed protesters became insurrectionists um, at at the behest of the sitting president and tried to interfere with the constitutional activities of our government in order to overturn an election. Um, we, you know, I don't know that there's any other way to describe that, but a coup d'état. And um, you know, that that really shakes at the fabric, I think, of our society and um, demonstrates the challenges that we've got to wrestle with. Um, I don't think we can just move forward quickly and heal, you know, we've got to really have a, I think a truth telling and reconciliation work before we can get to that healing part. Um, and we're just starting that now. Um, I'm cautiously optimistic that we have the maturity and the, um, commitment to go through that process, but it'll be something new for our country.
3: And, you know, coming off last year, while we still continue on with the pandemic but coming off last year with the calls for racial justice and then all these terms like equity and diversity Mm -hmm. and inclusion Um, so whether it's purpose-built communities or any other area what is key to making sure that the execution
1: happens so um i think the first thing is to really develop an understanding of how our current situation developed. Um, We really need to understand that the challenges that we're facing today did not happen by accident, but that they were designed, they were intentional, and they were done by our federal, state, and local government to benefit white people at the expense of black and brown people. And as we learn more about this collectively, particularly white people, needing to understand um, what's happened and how they have benefited from this system. Once we go through that process, then I think we can really be working towards building something new. And uh, every organization, every community is on a different timeline with regard to that work. Uh, We started that work maybe five or six years ago at Purpose Built. Mm -hmm. Um, While we had really been moved by the idea of fairness when we first started our work, we did not know the words equity. You know, we didn't focus on that when we first started. We thought about how do we create neighborhoods where everyone can thrive, mm-hmm. um, and we've gone through our own process of learning about equity and making uh, an intentional effort to work with people who could help us peel back the skin of the onion, right, and start to build our own equity lens and equity muscles and to develop a a process where we can be challenging ourselves and the folks that we work with over time on how we keep getting stronger with regard to using those equity muscles. So it's not something that we um, are expert in yet, but we are committed to getting better and better um, at this over time.
3: And for our listeners who may not be familiar with Purpose-Built Communities, and you just talked about how you all have had to go through another change in terms of making sure you're meeting the mission as it relates to what's taking place in our nation just in general. Mm
1: -hmm. Thank you. Um, Purpose-Built Communities is a nonprofit organization that partners with local leaders around the country to improve neighborhoods so that those neighborhoods become places that lift Everyone in that neighborhood up, where they create deep, durable pathways to prosperity for everyone. We're really, we only work where we have been invited by the community, by local leaders, and we have a very specific um, model of neighborhood revitalization uh, that is designed to move the needle on three big factors that we think, when executed well and with excellence and equity, ultimately. Um, create neighborhoods that really are these launch pads for children and families. So we want to move the needle on racial equity, economic mobility, and better health outcomes. Mm -hmm. And we do this with a very specific model of creating um, healthier places for people to live that include high quality mixed income housing with deep permanent affordability built in. We build a Uh, with local leaders a cradle through college education pipeline that starts with really high quality early learning so every little genius is ready for kindergarten and able to move forward and really take advantage of a great educational experience and graduates from high school with an actionable, financeable plan for post-secondary education. And then we think about community health and wellness. Mm -hmm. And while we used to conflate health and wellness with access to medical care, we have come to realize that that's only a small part of health and wellness. Access to medical care is important, but so are access to healthy foods. So are access to parks and recreation and shade and a good environment and all the kinds of things that people with choice have always been able to think about when they determine where they're gonna live. And we think everybody deserves to live in a neighborhood that has those kinds of elements present. The the secret sauce for this really complex, long-term cross-sectoral work is what we call a community quarterback organization, Mm -hmm. which is a nonprofit organization that works with a variety of nonprofits with a community and with other partners to execute upon that plan that is developed with the community about how you would develop how you would bring mixed income housing to a neighborhood how you would create in your community a cradle through college education pipeline and and that really secret sauce of that nonprofit working long-term with the community in a cross-sectoral way um, is really one of the things that's essential in this work
3: it's much more than building housing. It really is about tying in all those other quality of life tentacles that we talk a lot on this program. It's tying that all together in a community, education, workforce development, transit, Mm -hmm. you know, health and wellness,
1: all of that. (laughs) Yeah, uh, that's exactly right. That, you know, community development, like almost every other aspect of our uh, economy has been siloed historically. So we've had housers work in one corner and educators work in another and economic development people work in another. And they never coordinated or worked together in a very focused way. Mm-hmm. Uh, now we're seeing some of that happen at kind of the community and regional level, but historically not the neighborhood level. And so we've come to appreciate the research that has shown us that where people live and the conditions in which they live in their neighborhood is a really important predictor of their life outcomes. And so we follow that science and we follow that research and we work to create neighborhoods that, as my friend Jeffrey Canada says, you know, become platforms that blast kids off into the stratosphere Mm -hmm. so that every child can really reach his or her full potential.
3: Can you... Give us examples or a model, whether it's here in the Atlanta area. Now, often people want to point to Eastlake, and I think that mm-hmm. there are some unique circumstances there because they had a golf course. Not every community has a golf course to anchor around. If not here in the Atlanta area, other parts of the of the nation where this concept, this model has thrived and is working.
1: Sure, sure. Well, you're right. Our work um, is based on what we learned in the East Lake neighborhood of Atlanta. I've been working on that revitalization in one capacity or another for 26 years. Mm -hmm. So I've been able to take the lessons learned, what what worked really well, what worked okay, what we would do differently if we were starting over and to be able to create um, new opportunities in other places in Atlanta and beyond. We support projects now in 28 neighborhoods in Atlanta, or 28 neighborhoods in the country, excuse me, including three here in Atlanta that are all very different from one another. Mm-hmm. So Eastlake, you're more familiar with, your listeners are probably more familiar with. Um, let me talk just a little bit about Grove Park and Historic South Atlanta, which are very different from one another as they are different from Eastlake, mm-hmm. although they share those same three key strategies of mixed income housing, a cradle through college education pipeline and community health and wellness with that secret sauce community quarterback helping to knit it all together. So um, uh, Historic South Atlanta is really one of our newest network members, um, but the work there has been ongoing for almost 20 years. Um, That work has been led by FCS, Focus Community Strategies um, in, in South Atlanta. And um, over the last 20 years, they've been able to create a mixed income home ownership neighborhood, which is so cool because they were able to acquire uh, houses as they came on the market in what was then a very soft market, uh, renovate them and sell them or lease them to low and moderate income families. And they've done it in a way that will ensure that those families are, uh, to the extent that they are owners, um sharing in the equity of um the appreciation of those property values so we're building wealth uh, for the families who own it but at the same time uh, because they have a right to purchase those properties back at the end of the day they can keep them in the affordable housing stock Mm so i mean nobody's smarter than the folks at fcs on how you can do that in a home ownership setting. And I think it's a model that could be replicated in other parts of Atlanta and beyond. In, in Grove Park, um, our work there supporting the Grove Park Foundation started about three years ago um, when we met um, some folks at a West Side Futures Fund meeting. Mm-hmm. And they were interested in Grove Park, which is a few miles beyond the core of the West Side Future Fund work. And real, they really liked the idea of, creating that neighborhood hub around education, health and wellness, and bringing high quality mixed income housing to that neighborhood. Even a few years ago, it was evident that the market was coming, right? That you you could see it starting to come out Donald Hollowell. You could see it coming from uh, the north side. And so how do you work in a neighborhood like that, where you want to be able to preserve affordability, knowing that the market is coming. And so mixed income strategy is a really important strategy there as well. That's always the question, Carol. Right?
3: I, I didn't mean to interrupt yeah. you, but that's always the question. You can't control the market. How do you navigate through all of that? And, and you may want to buy well, property as yeah. well, but the value of that property may not
1: fit what you all can afford coming through your nonprofit thread. So, so you are so right. I mean, the, the realities are existing in a capitalist society. And so fundamentally, we're trying to do things that the market doesn't want to do on its own. So we've got to find other ways to tackle those problems. And so sometimes that is using government dollars or um, phil- philanthropy to get ahead of the market and recognize that, for example, you might want to buy land in a neighborhood because if you control land, you control your destiny. And so, so in my mind, one of the smartest things that philanthropists and uh, governments can be doing is creating opportunities to control that land directly, to own that land, even before you know exactly what you want to do with it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is, I think, some of the challenge that some philanthropists face, because they think that when they want to give money for something, they want to know exactly what's going to happen, our advice would be, to get that land, control that land early, and then figure out what you're going to do with it. Because by the time you figured out what you want to do with it, you won't be able to afford it. Mm -hmm. So getting ahead of that curve is important. You know, in in Atlanta, um, and in a lot of cities, we're seeing this, you know, increased interest in people living in the cities and um, waves of money and gentrification coming. We like to think of ourselves as a hedge against some of that by trying to provide that deep permanent affordability in neighborhoods that are going to become desirable because they will be great places to live. And unless we're intentional about building that affordability piece into it on the front end, those neighborhoods will be lost to legacy residents and other low-income people who might want to use that as a platform to be able to um, raise their children and see their children have a real chance at the American dream.
3: But one might counter that with some of those legacy neighborhoods and communities if they aren't lost to those legacy residents it is right there it's about to happen what's your response to that
1: so so you're right so you're right there are some places that are already lost and that people have been pushed out and my response would be as part of a sophisticated thoughtful strategy at a city level on how we want to deliver affordable housing we would need to make investments in those neighborhoods that are fr- frankly expensive because the property values have gone up. But that's the only way that will bring affordability back to those neighborhoods if they're already gone. Our work is more on the neighborhoods before they become, mm-hmm. um, before they're gone. How do we preserve affordability, recognizing that in many places the market will come And so we want a controlled market response, not a runaway market response.
3: Mm -hmm. The voice you hear is Carol Naughton. She's the new CEO of Purpose Built Communities. We're talking about not only her new role, but also the organization's mission uh, after more than two decades after its founding. Uh, Carol, but because of what took place with the pandemic starting last year, did that at all impact or hinder what the initiatives you were working on?
1: Uh, Of course, I think, you know, the, the pandemic has affected so many aspects of life and because black and brown communities were hit so hard in the initial wave of the pandemic, many of the communities where we work were amongst those communities where people were dying at incredibly high rates, where people had lost jobs, where schools were closed. And so the folks that we support in those neighborhoods needed to pivot to be able to support the immediate needs of their community. And, and turn their attention away for a little bit from the long game um, of rebuilding the infrastructure to meet the immediate needs. And so um, here in Atlanta, for example, uh, the East Lake Foundation, the Grove Park Foundation and FCS Urban Ministries have been working together in ways uh, and with a grant um, from the Harlem Children's Zone to purpose-built that's being executed by those three entities to um, protect the most fragile uh, in our communities during the time of, of COVID. Everything from um, per, personal protection devices, mm-hmm. masks, but also rent relief and food. And so importantly, the technology and resources to close the digital divide for both adults and children. Um, that that to me was one of the very first things that our network members in Atlanta and beyond needed to address because all the kids went home uh, and school became virtual. and not all the neighborhoods where we work in fact very few of the neighborhoods where we work on the front end have access to high quality internet right Mm -hmm. i'm sitting in my house right now able to have this conversation with you because i've got reasonably good internet i'll always complain about it but it's reasonably good in the grand scheme of things it will support the zoom call most of the neighborhoods where we work those that zoom capacity does not exist in the internet bandwidth so how do we help get the bandwidth to the neighborhoods, get the devices into the hands of children and adults. And then um, network members making sure that those children and the adults have the capacity to use those devices effectively has been a big chunk of this work over the last few months. You know, our our friend David Williams says, uh, when America catches a cold, Black America gets pneumonia. And that was certainly mm-hmm. the case when we first started. and. Uh, now the rest of America seems to be catching pneumonia as well.
3: Moving forward, then, uh, because like with all businesses, non-profits, for-profits, whatever, the pandemic also might have put a strain on on the finances. Uh, how, first of all, how do you all how are you how are you all funded, and mm-hmm. are do are you expecting some type of of financial impact due to the pandemic that you all are going to have to try to you know, uh, recoup or or make up?
1: Um, So let me take those in two buckets. Mm -hmm. First, um, Purpose Built is funded philanthropically. And so we don't charge for our services. Mm -hmm. When we're invited to a community, we're able to say uh, to local leaders, keep your money in your community, in your neighborhood, and we'll bring our model, we'll bring our resources to help you in this work. Now we don't bring money with us typically. Um, But we bring a model and some uh, smart, creative folks who are willing to roll up their sleeves and uh, use our experience and insight from what we've learned from other folks around the country to help um, create healthier neighborhoods. Um, Our philanthropists, um, uh, the three who originally helped fund us, include Mm -hmm. uh, the Cousins Family Foundation here in Atlanta, Mm -hmm. the CF Foundation. Tom Cousins was the original visionary along with renee glover and uh, eva davis Mm -hmm. in Eastlake, and um so so tom and his family foundation have funded our work along with the robertson family foundation in new york city and warren buffett Um, and the three of them helped us get started and and have funded us at the enterprise level since the since we launched in 2009 In the last two years, though, we've been uh, attracting additional funding and we're really excited that the Truist Foundation has made a major investment in Purpose Built. And um, they're helping network members around around the country, particularly within their footprint. And they're also funding our racial equity work, which is really exciting now that a bank like Truist is stepping up to fund a very intentional racial equity strategy for our our network members. And so um, the program is now called the uh, Truest Racial Equity Ambassadors Program. And we're in our second cohort now of network member leaders from around the country who are going through a very intentional program to help build their own racial equity lens and their own racial equity practice that they can take back to their organizations and their community. And we're hopeful that we will expand that over the next year or so. Our other funding um, comes from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, which is the country's largest foundation that's focused on health outcomes, because they've recognized what we do helps move the needle on health outcomes. We're moving the needle on the social determinants of health. um, And that creates real opportunity for the families in the neighborhoods where we work. And I mentioned the Harlem Children's Zone. So we're attracting broader funding going forward. your your question, though, about the pandemic mm-hmm.
5: creating
1: um, challenges, it's really true. I mean, um, and there some of them are expected challenges and some of them are unexpected challenges. Clearly, um, issues associated with, you know, operating public schools and uh, YMCA's and early learning programs, it's really difficult um, for both for-profit and nonprofit partners to be able to do what they have committed to do. And um, so that, that creates a challenge. We've also found that it's more expensive to be building housing right now for a variety of reasons, because sometimes product is short to get or labor is hard to find. So all these things are impacting um, the ability to redevelop communities and improve housing and education and health and wellness. Now, you mentioned the new administration coming in, and Mm -hmm. I am cautiously optimistic that there will be more uh, of an emphasis on uh, government and philanthropic funding to support work in neighborhoods. I think um, this summer's uh, protests in support of racial justice um, and COVID combined really shine a light on the need to invest in neighborhoods of concentrated poverty, which, you know, as I said earlier, were created intentionally, and that we need to overinvest in those neighborhoods because we underinvested intentionally. For, for generations. And so it's mm-hmm. not now time to overinvest in neighborhoods to bring some sense of equity and opportunity to those communities.
3: Let's talk about you for a moment as we, as we wrap up your vision to the organization.
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, we, you know, our first 10 years or so, we we're really focused on growth and helping people get started in this work. And uh, that was exciting and impactful work. And As our organization matures and our network members across the country are maturing, um, we are um, taking a little pivot um, and focusing more on how we can support those existing network members in order for for them to be more effective and to get to the kinds of outcomes that we believe are essential and important uh, under a shorter timeline. So we're not quite as focused on growth. We don't want to be the biggest, we want to be the best at helping communities really create platforms that serve their communities beautifully, where every little genius is ready and ready for kindergarten, where every little kid is ready to be successful, graduating from high school and becoming everything that they should be able to be. And so that's really what we're focused on now, help, helping our existing network members really rock.
3: Really rock, is, is that what you're gonna say?
1: Yeah, you know, that's, that's a technical <laughs> that <new term>. slogan. <laughs> um, but, but it really is about, um, it's about helping our existing network members mm-hmm. um, be really excellent in what they do, be driven by both a desire for excellence and equity. You know, excellence and equity have to be tied together. You really can't have one without the other.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: And and I don't think that's something that we talk about enough. Um, so so we're really trying to think about how we bring those two concepts together in action, um, not just in vision.
3: And how important is it also? Carol you're including concerns from those residents because often we've had this conversation before communities have been let down before right here in the Atlanta area
1: we're um, such an important question and while I don't think we're perfect at this by any stretch of the imagination we're working to become better I think the solution there is in this idea of a community quarterback organization that, isn't in, it's not a developer, it's not an educator, it's not delivering services, but it really is uh, with the community, the keeper of the vision and creates some muscle to be able to hold the partners accountable to be doing what they said they would do. And it provides a single point of accountability to the community and the community, community members always are, Um, At the core of the community quarterback organizations are always community members who are part of that organization. So I think that mechanism may create a sustainable way to have the voice of the community centered in this work that goes beyond any one little housing deal or community development play or even a big housing deal. Right. Mm -hmm. But it's that that mechanism becomes a place for uh, accountability transparency, and centering the voice of the community in this work over the long haul.
3: All right, well, I think that's a good way to end this conversation. Carol Naughton is the new CEO of purpose Built Communities, and we've been talking about the mission of the organization and what she hopes to bring to purpose Built Communities. Carol Naughton, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you very much, Rose. It was a real treat to be here with you.
3: And that is it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineers, Shelley Canavy. And if you missed any of today's conversations and segments, you can find the entire program online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, always on demand, just subscribe to Closer Look with Rose Scott, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR, I'm Rose Scott.